Welcome back to another episode of the Resellers Mindset Podcast. My name is Mike, also known as the Used Book Guy on YouTube, along with my friend and fellow full-time reseller, Johnny B. We help people start and grow their reselling businesses from the ground up. We also have a weekly Zoom call and private Discord for all YouTube members. Head on over to youtube.com backslash usedbookguy to join the channel and gain access to the full-length podcast, Zoom call, and private Discord today. Let's get into this week's episode. What is up, everybody? Welcome into episode 22, I believe. That's what we said, 10, 10, and 2. We actually have help, so we can do it today. We have Joji on the podcast today. This is a long-awaited call for me. He sells books, but in a completely different way than me and Johnny B, right? I'm the Amazon guy. Johnny B is the eBay guy. Now we got the combo can down here. Joji, <laughs> who does basically, utilizes both platforms to make his yeah. business work. Uh, we're just going to let him kind of take it away, introduce himself, kind of a little bit about himself, a little bit about his business. And then me and Johnny will pick his brain here a little bit because this is all brand new to both of us. Yeah. Thanks for having me first. I appreciate it, Mike, Johnny. This is uh, super awesome to be here. Uh, yeah. So my name is Joji. I'm a high school chemistry teacher, 28 years old. And basically I got in the game when I was like 22 years old. So I saw Steve Rakin on YouTube back when I was 22. So that's like six years ago now. I think that would have been 2016. And man, I was just, I was hooked from the beginning. I think the first thing I flipped was a CD. I think I bought it for like a dollar at a Goodwill, flipped it for like 65 bucks. And I was like, dude, this is crazy. The power of Amazon FBA. And a little bit later on, you know, I was in my senior year of my undergrad year. I realized that, hey, there's a lot of people on campus that have textbooks. And I honestly kind of completely missed the opportunity during my undergrad because I didn't learn about textbooks. I didn't really learn about Amazon FBA until my final year, but Point is, got my my undergraduate degree, then I went to get my master's degree because I was going to get a teaching credential. And I realized that, dude, if you join the Facebook groups on campus, like the textbook exchange group, the freedom for sale group, there are people just posting up their textbooks. And these are not cheap textbooks. Like these are books, 70, 80, $100 plus. And like a lot of these people are like, hey, I want 20 bucks for this book that sells for 100. So literally every single day, man, you know, at this time I was also doing my internship with teaching as well. So I was also teaching a couple of days during the week, but every day I was on campus, I was just filling up bags and bags of textbooks. And, and I sold, I mean, probably those, those two years to my master's, at least like 30,000 or so in textbooks. So I basically cash flowed my college and I graduated debt-free because of it. And, you know, got out uh, of college with my, my teaching degree, went right into teaching high school chemistry. And I was like, dude, I still want to still want to do Amazon FBA. I still want to do textbooks. But the problem was like, I don't really have the time to be on camp. Like I'm not on a college campus anymore. So I kind of had a transition. That's kind of how went down the rabbit hole of doing like offer up uh, online arbitrage and then eventually going to eBay online arbitrage and then learning about how to buy undervalued books on Amazon and flip them back on Amazon. So that's like a probably way too long way to explain that. What I do is I buy books online and then I flip them online. Yeah. Uh, so, so I have a, a question for you. How heavily or if any at all, were you in thrifting before you decided to kind of take it online? Like, yeah. were you heavily out there, you know, in the in thrift stores at some point? Or did you kind of just skip that whole step that most of us kind of, you know, your your typical Amazon businesses, thrift stores, and then maybe you switch to something like you're doing? Yeah, good question. I did a little bit of thrifting, not a ton. And I wasn't exclusively books. In the beginning, it was just anything. Because back in 2016, it was a wild, wild west, man. You could send in anything to Amazon and they didn't care. Like you can send in brand new board games, half the seals off. Like they wouldn't care. Like it was a wild, wild west back then. And I would say I, I did mostly garage sales and offer up. And I don't even think Facebook marketplace was a thing at that time or I wasn't aware of it, but I was mainly just garage sales and offer up because people would put a whole bunch of, you know, 
people put a bunch of books up, uh, textbooks up on offer up locally, but also I was really into video games. So I did a lot of uh, video game flipping, offer up deals, Craigslist deals. So yeah, I didn't really do much thrifting. I was kind of more directly with just interacting with people who had something that I wanted and I was just hustling like that. Kind of the same as you, right? Uh, Johnny, you really never got out there and really hit the hit the thrift stores like full-time right thrift store scene wasn't really my thing i would go places and do bulk pickup kind of deal and i still do that i've been into thrifts don't get me wrong i just it's slower it's just slower so i mean i mean that's that's a huge point that i say all the time is you don't need thrift stores and you shouldn't be relying on thrift stores neither of these guys could care less if they go into thrift store in the next three months it does not matter to them and you might be somebody that's thinking, well, I have one thrift store in my area, so this business is impossible. And you could be the furthest thing from wrong, wrong with that kind of mindset because these these dudes are never in thrift stores. They're never dealing with the, the riffraff I got to deal with just to get in there <laughs> scan the shelf of books sometimes. Well, yeah, because you never know if the manager is going to be in to do the buy it all because I, I do bulk, right? And it's like, it's just, uh, take me two weeks to buy the thrift store. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious, Joji, uh, when, when you first like, Cause when you, when you first got into eBay to Amazon, I mean, was there somebody that kind of like you, you kind of looked into or maybe had a session with to kind of understand it more because there's not really, at least that I see out there on YouTube, there's not that many people that'll sit down and kind of show you the way it's supposed to be done. Like you do with your lives and everything on YouTube there. I don't, I don't know of anybody else on YouTube that kind of would be somebody that you, if you're not there, who else is there to kind of show you the way? How did you learn, basically? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good question. Uh, I I think you'd have to back up a little little bit. Have you? I'm sure you've both heard of a software called eFlip. I'm sure you've yeah. heard of that. You've heard of Zen Arbitrage. So back in I think I think eFlip came out in 2017 or 2018. But when that product came out, I was super interested in, in that online arbitrage tool. So that's what I started with, and I think that's where I got the gears moving with like okay, you have the opportunity to buy books on Amazon and flip on Amazon. So I think that was the beginning. I think Caleb Roth, he's the one who created that software. So it was kind of him. He has a lot of recordings with that software uh, specifically, but the idea of being able to buy a book online and then resell it online, the online arbitrage, sort of like that's where that idea came from. As far as um, eBay to Amazon flips, that is actually something that fields a profit. You've heard of Warner Fields. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, I think he came out like maybe last last year with a video on like how to use Flipmine, which is a software for e- eBay to Amazon online arbitrage. So I looked at one of his videos and yeah, he's also a great teacher. He went through like how you could potentially find some books. And so from there, that's kind of all I needed to know. I just needed to know like what tool I could use. And, you know, if we back up back to 2017, I was actually, uh, back then I was buying books on Amazon and reselling them on Amazon. But kind of the way that I bought, the way that, I buy books now has kind of evolved since then, but um, yeah, I think eBay buying books and eBay specifically was maybe about about last year, like early last year when I learned from Warner. Yeah. Do you ever go the other way around from Amazon to eBay? Yeah, some people ask me that all the time, and um, I've never done that. I've never tried doing that. I think it's probably possible, but I, I think it's probably just way more likely to go eBay to Amazon rather than Amazon to eBay. Sure. For, uh, for a number of reasons, which we could talk about. But yeah, I've never tried that. But I'd be interested to, to know if someone has done Will that. the software let you? Like, say, we no, pull the, up the flip, flip mine will uh, not. No, flip mine will not let you do that. Okay. We can't just hit the reverse button and then it goes the, yeah. the other way. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm curious. So, why would you guys? So, my understanding is Amazon is king, right? So, I'm curious to know both of your thoughts. Like, why, why do you think a, I have a couple of ideas, maybe, but I'm curious what your ideas would be. Why do you think a book would sell better on eBay rather than Amazon? Uh, 
I'm guilty of doing this. I send books in Amazon all the time that uh, are signed and I just put them under the normal price. So maybe people are put in, mm. maybe they have a condition note. Not I don't put in the condition note that it's signed, but maybe mm. some people do. So maybe there'd be a software that can pull all the Amazon book listings that are signed by the author. And you're going to get more for most likely more for that stuff on eBay because it's more of a collectible niche market for those kind of things versus Amazon where they really don't care if it's signed. It's going to be your condition, your good condition that's going to sell. Right. Sure, you can put collectible but most people, you know, aren't going to look through that. But that would that would be my my take on it if I had to do it and try to yeah. figure out a way to make it make sense. And in my reason, I've sent some stuff on Amazon and I've taken a look, and it's due to poor title structure where it's buried, and the customer would have to know to type in certain things. Mm, interesting. We call it back to eBay; it sells the same week. Interesting. Yeah, that. Yeah. So, yeah, those are both good ideas. Um, Start start developing the software, Joji. I mean, that's what we're telling you here. All right. I mean, get yeah. the work behind the scenes. That one's free. We'll charge you for the next. One. <laughs> all right. I think I think the big the, my big appeal with this right is you can kind of do this from anywhere. And there's a lot of people that are on YouTube and maybe they kind of live in the middle of nowhere or they don't have as many sources or they don't have as much time. So the appeal for something kind of like a business you have is that. You don't have to leave the house and it doesn't matter how much how many thrift stores you have. You don't it doesn't matter your competition in your area. You're just sitting online, dedicating a certain time to sit down and look at these things to flip. And I think that's the big attraction to it. I mean, like what what kind of attracted you to it? Was it the time or was it the 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 money you could make? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think mostly it's just I just inherently didn't like going out places, going thrifty, scanning a whole bunch of stuff. I just would, you know, I was always like, I'd rather just buy fewer books and sell them for way more money than do a whole bunch more volume, which could accomplish the same thing. I mean, you just need a lot more volume at lower ROI or lower profit. So I think it was just me kind of naturally not wanting to have to go places because if you think about all the time, like it takes for you to, to actually drive somewhere. And then, you know, if you make a, a map of all the Goodwills and all thrift stores, like it, and you go, you know, one day around, it might actually take you like an hour and a half or two hours just in travel time and waiting around. So it's like, that was all dead time to me where it's like, okay, I think online arbitrage could definitely work, especially if you built up some capital, because, you know, you can, with online arbitrage, you're already kind of just getting rid of so many people in this space because most people won't do that. Like they don't think to do that or they're just not comfortable doing it. But then when you raise your average buy cost as well, you also reduce the number of people who even do online arbitrage that are willing to get in that space. So I felt like there was just like a market that was clearly available with plenty of room for me to come in. And I was like, you know, at this point in my life as well, I don't I don't have time to go thrift stores. Like I wake up 6 a.m. I got to be at school teaching the kids by 8 a.m. Then I get home at 4.35 and I spend time with my, my boy and my wife. And then it's like, I have to source 10.30 p.m. to midnight. It's like, I can't go to the thrift store to do that. You know what I mean? It, it's crazy that the, the, the kind of numbers you can put up if you're focused and understand what you're working with. And I'm kind, right. kind of going to get into this, like I'm the cheapest person around, right? So like- sure. It, you're you might spend you know forty dollars on a book and i'm yeah. thinking to myself well that's 40 books at the thrift store right that's my cheap <laughs> yeah. mind running but y- yeah. you really don't think about you know like you said the time and the thrift stores are no guarantee right you could yeah. go to them as 20 thrift stores in a day and get nothing so like yeah. for somebody that's kind of has my like cheaper mindset like how would you go about like say for example i was like hey i want to get into doing this um, but I'm I'm super cheap with this. Is it feasible to kind of start with little to nothing and kind of build this business into you know what you made it into today? Yeah, 
I think so. Just to give you some context. The average book cost right now for me is about twenty, like just a little bit over twenty-seven dollars. So like per book that I buy, that's what I would spend. Uh, could you do it cheaply? I think, I think the probably the best way for you to start would be take the books that you've already sold on Amazon and then take a look at them. Take a look at their keeper graphs. I'm not sure how familiar you are with reading keeper graphs, but take a look at their keeper graph. Look at if in the past there's ever a point in time where you could say. If I could have gone back in time and bought this book at this price, it would have been a good deal knowing what you know now in the future. And start with the books that you've already sold because you already have a little bit of like uh, security. Like you know that you've already sold this book for 45 bucks. So the one book that we were just talking about when we, I won't mention what it was, but the book that you, the magazine that you had sold before it came on here, it's like, hey, look back at the Keeper graph. Maybe that book was $8.99 in the past and you set a, a Keeper tracker alert for that and you get notified. And it's like, hey, I remember selling this for 45. So maybe just investing the money in things that have already moved for you in the past that you have more, um, you know, you have more confidence in selling. You could totally buy books that are much cheaper, um, but it's just that the average sell price is going to be lower. So yeah, you could spend, you know, between five to $10 per book, but you're probably looking more at like, probably in the low end, like 25 to like 35 or $40. So you could do it cheaply for sure. Um, and then build over time. So I want you to debunk a myth for me here that an OA buyer is only a couple bad buys away from being out of business. Yeah. Uh, if you have no capital, yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. There yeah. you go. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that kind of leads us into how you, I'm going to assume you use Be Cool as your repricer? Correct. Yes. So just for clarification here, that allows you to set minimum maximum prices for your items. Correct. So you can have a minimum set to maybe it's your break even or a little bit under if it's been there for X amount of time. Right. And, and you know, you're selling one-offs, right? You're not buying right. 100 copies of the same book. So it does yeah. kind of alleviate the the risk tolerance, I guess. Um, yeah. Just curious, like just in your experience for like what you see when you buy that book off eBay, say it says that you're going to make $50 on it. Mm -hmm. how, many, how many times do you think you actually make close or that amount or maybe even a little bit more just like uh one out of three one out of four because we all know when you scan yeah. a book in a thrift store and it says yeah. ten dollars profit you ain't getting ten bucks right that's just yeah. that's it's got to get there it's got to get repriced all that nonsense i'm just curious yeah. what you see with like the higher price dollar textbooks so the the prices yeah. kind of stay more like where they should be versus you know the the junkier stuff we're selling yeah uh, I, I think it's, like you said, it's very variable. It depends on the book for sure. Textbooks inherently can be very volatile, especially during textbook season. So what I would say is that when I, when my thought process into buying a book is I'm always trying to be super conservative. So by conservative, I mean like the worst, absolute worst case, case scenario should be that you break even on this book because you're buying it so undervalued. Obviously there are some books that I have to take losses on. It's a very, very small percentage and, you know, some books would be like there are outside circumstances that you couldn't have predicted. Like here's a book that let's say over the last four or five years, there's never been any, you know, there have been new third-party sellers on it and maybe they've always been at 150 and then just randomly somebody comes on with a hundred new copies at like 1599. You're like, dude, what the heck? Like there's no way I could have accounted for something like that. But I would say overwhelming majority of the books do sell. I do pick up books that are longer tell though. So my average like sales rank is like 1.3 million. Like, that's those are books that take a while to sell. It takes about three and a half months and average to sell the books. And yeah, I mean, I definitely have some books that I bought from last year, like almost a year ago that still haven't sold. But if you look at the keeper graphs, like they, they, they should still sell. So I guess my mindset of when I'm buying books is I'm trying to buy an asset. So I'm trying to take 
the money that I have and invest it in something that it inherently holds value. And I think one of the reasons why thrifting is so hard is because if you're finding books that are lower average selling price and they inherently hold less value, then the volatility means that they could basically become worthless like very easily. But if you think of a book that has been consistently selling for 50 or $60 for the last five or 10 years, and then you invest $25 in it, it's like you're putting your money into something that inherently holds value. Like it's just a store of value. That's not money, but it's like an object. You know what I mean? So uh, I guess that's my thought process behind that. How much automation to manual work is your workflow like? Is it like fully automated Skynet style or do you have to do some manual number punching from time to time? Yeah, I definitely have to do manual stuff. Like I have a spreadsheet of every book that I've purchased, exactly when I purchased it, where I purchased it, how I purchased it. Um, And then I also, you know, you know how you have a transaction statement every two weeks, it tells you exactly what you sold. So every day at the end of every day, I'll go in and see what I sold. And I don't sell very many books. Like on average, I sell five to six books a day. But or I should say between three to five books a day is generally what I sell. My average sell price is $99. So it's like, um, I don't sell very many books. What I do is I just will take that book that I bought, I'll go over to my spreadsheet, and I can just log it in individually. So there's probably a much better way to do that. So yeah, that's what I do manually. Um, even with repricing with my B, with B cool, I have to type in the min and the max price. I have to look at every keep a graph of every book that I buy. So it's definitely not super automated. I do have a couple of VAs now that are helping me, helping me with sourcing. So that's definitely helped. But I would say I spend about like two hours a day on this business. And, and that's, you know, that's what I do. Is it is seven days or is it five days? A yeah, week? like I said, no, seven days. I spend like two hours every day on it. Yeah. Okay. So we're looking at 14, 14 hours a week. Uh, just throw, you, you don't even have to be exact, throw out like a monthly sales number that you recently had. Uh, so January this year was 32K. And then last month was 13, just over 13,000. So, and then basically all of last year. So last year I did 105K in sales and that was about $30,000 of profit. Um, yeah. So, I mean, for people out there that don't have time, I mean, he just blew up your whole argument. He yeah. literally, you know... Has a newborn, works a full time job, and still finds a way to kind of, kind of, to kind of make this work. What's the big motivator for you? Is it, is it just the financial freedom? Because for me, that's what it was for me, right? I grew up in yeah. debt. I was in credit card debt my whole life, and kind of, I said, well, I can have this side hustle to kind of get me out of the debt, get me out of the credit cards, and kind of, you know, just if I want to buy something, then I can buy it. That was kind of my motivator. I didn't want to have to, you know, worry about if the if a cat needed surgery or something, I ain't got <laughs> the money to put it up. So good, that was yeah. kind of that was kind of like my motivator. What was yours mm-hmm. like? Yeah, I think my motivator is that it is ultimately like financial independence. So my wife and I are on a journey of financial independence, retire early, and increasing your income is one way to be able to become financially independent earlier in life. I would say there are other aspects of it. Like I genuinely just love flipping stuff. It's like a game to me. Like it's just super fun. You know, I have obviously have other interests and hobbies, but it's like you know, some people are like, well, don't you ever want to take a break? And in some ways I'm like, this is my break. Like, this is fun to me. Like, this is stress relieving. Like, this is something that I like. I generally want to do. So maybe I'm fortunate that I was able to align a side hustle uh, with a hobby and like in those things, uh, they commingle well. And then I guess the other thing is like, I do want to start a YouTube channel because I, you know, somewhat selfishly would love to put my name out there and would love to meet people like yourselves. Like there's no way who, we, there's no way we could have really met if, if we both were on YouTube, like we live in different, we're in the U S but in in reality, we live in different parts of the world. Like we, we would never see each other. I, I, you know, um, yeah. so I guess it's just, you know, combination of things, but 
yeah, I think fin- I want to become financially independent. I, it's a hobby. I really like to do it. And then also selfishly, like I want to kind of get my name out there. I want to kind of, I would like to be known. I'd like to, to meet new people. And I like to also teach people because I think that's a skill of mine. So is there a scenario where you would leave your teaching gig to go do this full time? Yeah, I think once we become financially independent, I think that is what the goal is. So our goal is to be financially independent by age 35. Right now we're age 28. So by 35 means that Mike is making me feel old. (laughs) So the goal is that by age 35, we'd get to a point where we would no longer need to work any longer based upon our current living expenses because we live very frugally. And at that point, um, it would be probably just get out of teaching because I love teaching high school. It has its own challenges though. And, you know, it's as much as I love, love teaching high school. It is also, you know, emotionally, it's also taxing. Like it's not, not an easy job. Um, so yeah, I think I like to transition. I think YouTube can help me with that as well, like helping to get my name out there, helping help other people, hopefully also grow the you know business in that way. Because going back to your point, it's like last year, I you know I sold hundred thousand dollars in books, made thirty thousand dollars of profit, but I had to bust my ass. Like I had to do that two hours every day. You know, I had to do that ten thirty p.m. to midnight. I had to wake up at six a.m. Do you know? So it was not like it's easy. Like it sacrifices. So I know that education, coaching people, that is also a way that you can generate more revenue. So maybe kind of taking the pedal off a little bit in terms of going so hard and like getting Amazon ramped and maybe helping people more could be a way to segue. That's as well. still a part of teaching. So you wouldn't be giving it up all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. You're right, Johnny. Exactly. Yeah, I know. I I seen because I'm in your Discord and everything. You you just started your your you know offering one on one like coaching sessions. Yeah. Um. I mean, well, as a teacher teaching you, right? It's one of those yeah. things, and that kind of gets me to like, say if somebody comes along like myself, I suck with computers, I suck with software. Um. Yeah. Do you think it's possible for somebody like myself to to get into a business like yours and start doing eBay to Amazon flips with mm-hmm. no really technology experience? Um, just kind of run that down, right? Because I know there's a bunch of different programs that you need mm-hmm. uh, and just kind of like the cost of those programs as well for somebody out there that's maybe just thinking about giving it a shot. So just give me a rundown of if you had to teach somebody from nothing today and lay out the expenses of me starting. Yeah, if you're just starting brand new, the only software you need is Keepa. That's it because Keepa is how you're going to analyze every single book that you come across, really any product that you come across. It tells you everything that you need to know about it. And then also Keepa has these ways for you to source inventory. Like not sure if you guys have used the Keeper product finder, you use the Keeper deals page, if you use Keeper alerts, but those three things independently, like if those were softwares that were not part of Keeper, I would easily pay a hundred dollars a month for, uh, for each of those individually. So those are really powerful sourcing tools. Um, if anyone out there is familiar with like eFlip and Zen Arbitrage and Master Book Flippers, like all those softwares, in my opinion, are inferior to Keepa's ways to source books that I just mentioned. So all you really need to get started is to keep a subscription, which is about $20 a month. Now going to what is required in terms of like, you need to be able to analyze data. So if being able, like if you're not really able to look at a graph, and you're not really able to follow, like look at, um, you know, make sort of relationships between like how, like, like supply and demand, um, which is things that are, it's not like it's super difficult, but the, at the same time, it's like you have to have some analytical ability. So I would say, if you're someone who just, you look at numbers and you look at graphs and you're like, oh, it just makes me crazy. Then I would say probably maybe start with thrifting, start maybe a different model because I won't, I would lie if I said it wasn't analytical heavy, like pretty much every book that I buy, you have to read a keeper graph because you have to know if it's a good buy or not. So, um, it may not when, be good when you started it, like, uh, 
did you like for maybe like the first month or two or three, did you like go for like the, the lower value stuff to see if you knew what you were doing? Right. I'm going to assume you didn't just jump in and start buying $50 textbooks from the beginning. Um, yeah, I, I would say from the beginning, because I already had that experience of being on campus and, and being, I had, I was willing to spend a little bit more for books, like for books that I knew that were selling for, you know, hundred plus, I was willing to put up 30, 40, maybe even 50 bucks for them. I think I was able to come into like e-flip and like spend a little bit more money. I will, I would lie though, if I didn't say that it makes you anxious sometimes it's like, man, do I really want to put 50 bucks for one book? Cause there's a lot of things that can inherently go wrong. And in the beginning, like even when I was flipping books on college campuses, when you don't know what you don't know, it's like, man, am I really going to spend 25 bucks for this book? It looks great. It looks like it sells for a hundred, but you don't actually know it until you do it. And so yeah. I think it was kind of just building up the confidence with, with starting slow. And once you start slow and you're like, okay, you start to notice patterns. Like these books are actually selling. They are moving. I am making money. Then I was able to, 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 to go a little bit ahead, you know, a little bit deeper. And like, now I get to the point where I feel comfortable with my keep abilities. Like if I, if I look at a book and, looks like it holds value. Like I've definitely bought books for over $200 on eBay and flipped them for 400 or 500. So I'm not, at this point, I'm willing to do that, but it took a long time to get to that point. And what would be your biggest advice to someone just starting OA or the biggest mistake you've made to avoid? Yeah. I'd say the biggest mistake for OA booksellers is, is the is the uh your, your the way like the business model the way that you think you're going to make money so like eflip zen arbitrage master book flippers the goal for those softwares is to find the lowest merchant offer and then flip lowest fba which would be in the buy box in other words exploit the, the prime bump so right. i would say most people go wrong in buying books for eight or nine dollars on amazon as the lowest merchant offer thinking they're going to sell them for 45 or 50 bucks in the buy box in other words, the way that they make money is exploiting the buy box. And what you learn is that, okay, you have to understand when the buy box is actually reasonable. Yes, people are 100% willing to pay more money to get it in two days, but you got to think logically, like, is someone really going to pay 40 or 50 more dollars to get that in two days? Probably some small percentage of people, but the overwhelming majority of people are not. So it's like, what I had to learn quickly was that, okay, all these initial buys in the beginning when I was like trying to buy these books at the lowest merchant offer, flip them for the buy box. Like I was like, this isn't working. These books are not selling. The buy box eventually comes back back down. It tanks. I end up barely making money or I basically break even. So then I had to learn, well, how do you fundamentally buy undervalued books? Because the way that at least my my thought process on, on it is now is that I'm trying to find books that are, are cheaper than they should be. And therefore the way you make money is just by buying them and then reselling them for what they should be sold for. Like that's how you make the margin. So, yeah. Are you on any other platforms for selling other than Amazon? Yeah. I mean, I'm a little bit on eBay. I'll usually sell books on eBay. Um, if I have some restricted books that I can't sell to a buyback company or I can't sell the restricted inventory, I'll sell them on eBay, but very, very small percentage. Yeah. I was going to say that since your, your main focus is textbooks, um, what is your gating situation look like, right? Because kind of when we created our Amazon accounts, you know, years and years ago, there was really none of this nonsense of every publisher is gated. But now every yeah. day somebody needs to get ungraded, ungated in McGraw-Hill, Pearson. Yeah. Um, do you have like any big gates that are still up for you? Or like, are you actively still trying to ungate some publishers? Like just what's, what's yeah, it kind of look I've, like for you? I've ungated everything that's ungatable at this point. I, I still cannot sell the popular textbook categories, which are the Cengage, McGraw-Hill, Pearson, like the specific books. And those are, 
a lot of people complain about that, but it's actually the silver line to that is that all those books are highly likely to be counterfeit. So story time back in early 2021, I had, I was selling textbooks. I sold three counterfeit textbooks. I got test buyed out by, by a company. They sent me basically letters that said, Hey, you're selling counterfeit textbooks. They gave me no proof that the books I sold were actually counterfeit. And even at that time, I wasn't even aware that counterfeit textbooks were a thing. Um, and as a result of that, basically my account got suspended on Amazon. I had to hire an attorney. I had to pay like $1,500 to write plan of actions, which tend like actually end up to not be very good plan of actions. And I could have probably just done a better job myself, but I basically had to wait for those, those counterfeit claims to fall off my account after 180 days. Eventually my account went back to green and I'm no longer suspended anymore. But the point is that those specific categories for textbooks that everyone's gated in, it's actually a good thing because those are books that are highly likely to be counterfeited. And if you're not gated in those right now and you are selling textbooks, you should probably expect to get test buyed at some point by those companies. And from my understanding, they don't have to provide any evidence whatsoever that the books that you actually sold to them are counterfeit. You have to prove to them that what you bought is not counterfeit. And you cannot do that if you bought it from a student or you thrifted it or you got it from a bulk buy. Um, the only way you can do that is with an actual invoice from a distributor, which no one has. So, um, yeah, I basically can sell everything else. Just, I can't sell those, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but yeah. Well, dark cloud scenario, if the suspension becomes, would ever become a permanent thing for lack of unforeseeables, yeah. what would you do? Would you still book flip? Yeah, it's great, great. Yeah, probably I would. Um, I'd probably get my account, my wife to to form an account with in a different address and a different, you know, right. different bank account that's not tied to me. Probably use a VPN so the IP address is different. So that's probably what I would you, try you to would do. You still go back just to sneakily win. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like 100%. it. I'm not in the wrong here. These guys, I mean, um, yeah, I would, I would try to get an account somewhere. If I couldn't get an account with someone I knew, then. I'd try one of my friends and probably try to work out like a, a commission deal or something like, Hey, can I, can I sell books on under your name on your account? And, you know, I'll give I'll you 10% of whatever I make. Yeah. I like huh? it. I'll even do the mail run for you. I yeah. Like yeah. Dude. Yeah. So hopefully uh, Jeff Bezos isn't watching this or. You know. <laughs> I think us older accounts are in the free and clear. Now they only go after the newbies. It seems like overall. Yeah. Hopefully we'll, we'll see. I don't know. I mean, just hopefully jinxed it, you just jinxed it. I was going to, I was going to ask you like, if the, if you buy books off eBay, like if you're inspecting them, but you use a prep center, don't you? Correct. These are prep centers. So what I do is I use a uh, books run as a website. It's a buyback company. They also sell books on their website. They have a, a counterfeit probability check. It's not perfect, but what I'll, what I'll do and I have my VAs do is just run that ISBN through that counterfeit probability check. And if it comes back likely or unlikely, I just don't even mess with it. If it comes back unlikely, which most books do come back unlikely, then I'll just send it to a prep center. And, you know, I have a, I think a really good prep center, the central, um, you know, one um, central Virginia prep, that's my prep center. Uh, they do a really good job of inspecting books in comparison to, I think, other, other prep centers, not saying that they're opening every book and they're like, check marking every eight you know they're just doing a better job comparatively to other people and you know like I, i've been using a prep center for the last year and a half and i so far i haven't had any issues with more counterfeits but one of the big reasons is that i cannot sell the books that are very likely to be counterfeited so probably uh, that's one of the reasons why as well so kind so, of a or go ahead mike i was gonna say so checks and balance wise you you actually run every one of your books you buy through this software just right. to err on the side of caution, even though, you know, like right. you said, most 99% of the time, 
it's not counterfeit. You just want to cover all your bases on your end. And is that like a paid software or what? No, it's actually free. And I would step back and say it's not 99%. Like actually there are a ton of counterfeit books out there. Um, it's actually more than you would think. I just, so there are books every day that I'll run through that say likely or, or very likely that I just won't buy. So I, I come across them. We come across them every day, but um, it is a free, it's it's free. It's not a software. It's just a website. You can just type it, type in books run, uh, counterfeit probability check. And like I said, it's not perfect. Just because something says likely or unlikely, or sorry, just because something says likely or very likely doesn't mean it's counterfeit. It just means there's a good chance that it could be. And just because it says unlikely doesn't mean that it's not counterfeit. So it's just kind of like you said, it's a preventative thing. I catch books that probably could have been counterfeit. And that's the goal is to prevent those from getting to the warehouse. Well, textbooks gets all the glory, right? Are there other books besides textbooks you'd like to go after? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, with eBay, basically with Flipmine, I should say that software, anytime a new book is listed on eBay or really anything in any product because, or any category, because Flipmine isn't just for books specifically, it's for any product category out there. But whenever anything new is listed on eBay, what Flipmine tries to do is take that, that UPC code and match it to something on Amazon. And the goal is if there's a price differential between the two, then potentially you could buy it on eBay and flip on Amazon. So yeah, there are tons of books that have value that are not textbooks. And an easy way to see how many books out there that are not textbooks um, would be just to use the product finder tool. You can basically input parameters and say, hey, find me books that have a value over the last 180 days above $75. Um, And then you can, down below, you can say, I don't want this to be McGraw-Hill. I don't want it to be Cengage. I don't want it to be this. So then you can basically filter out like there's tens of thousands of books that have a ton of value. And those are books that I would also flip as well. Nice. You only like books. Are you into like flipping other things or like, does it even interest you? Or are you like just staying kind of being, being the book flipper guy with this and not really kind of trying to get into other categories? Yeah, I, I think I used to be into to video games a lot. Like I said, I was doing a lot of like offer up and Facebook marketplace uh, video game flipping. And I kind of just realized that the amount of time it takes in comparison to me buying books is not worth it. Like it, it, in many ways, flipping, flipping video games is so much fun. Like the hunt is so I'm not sure if any of you guys do that, but the, the hunt of going out there, finding video games like garage sales and even thrift stores, like it's, it's really awesome. But at the end of the day, like when you sit down and you, you run the numbers, like selling books is way up here compared to, to flipping video games. So that was one of the reasons. Uh, the, another reason is I, you know, from what I've read, like there's this book I read called the pumpkin plan that I'm not sure if you heard about it. It's by an author named Mike Michalowicz. He also read, or he also wrote uh, profit first, but the idea is like, if you think about those pumpkin farmers that win these big competitions for like the biggest pumpkin, the only thing that they think about is, is growing the biggest pumpkin. They think about like, but what's the exact soil I need? What's the exact seed that I need? What's the exact sunlight? What's the exact amount of water? So they really hone in on one thing to to try to grow one big pumpkin rather than to try to grow some, you know, I guess larger, you know, have more, more quantity of larger ones. So I think the idea is that focus can really, can really help you grow something big rather than being distracted. And now actually that I'm becoming more automated with the business that I do have a couple of VAs that are helping me. Once, once I get books completely automated and I feel like my VAs are buying at the same capacity that I am, I do kind of want to transition to just normal traditional OA because I think that could be very, um, that could be very lucrative as well. Cool. I, um, I would love to be a video game flipper like yourself, but yeah. there ain't enough product out there. Is it, I think I would say like, do you feel like 
one reason you kind of stick with books is a lot of people kind of undervalue their books versus say video games. If you're on eBay, like people, people are more likely to put an astronomical price on a, on a video game than a book. Just, just some crazy person that decides to list something. Yeah. 100%. People in general, I'm sure both of you agree, like they see books and it's a really weird di dichotomy of books because people don't see, don't see them as having value yet. They don't want to throw them away. So it's weird that you would see something that's like, oh, this has this has no value, but also I'm not going to throw it away. Most people, when they think it has no value, they just toss it. But yeah, 100%, if you're somebody who is flipping books, I would say look at Facebook Marketplace, offer up in your local area. If you're living in some place that's populated, I'm sure throughout the week, there's got to be at least three or four pretty good deals. Like I'm talking spend 20, flip it for 100 plus. Like there's got to be a couple of those because I've been like, even now I'm, on my YouTube series, I'm doing a zero to a thousand series. And I'm trying to show people like if I had zero, like if I actually had zero dollars, what I would do. And I'm still finding like four or five deals a week where I can literally go drive out and meet someone in my local area. Now, granted, I live in a kind of more populated area, so that helps. But definitely don't sleep on those Those are great opportunities. And yeah, a lot of people just, I just, they just don't see books as having a lot of value, I think. No, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I see that also in CDs and DVDs. Yeah. Well, more so in CDs, less so in DVDs. Because I think the, the video games have that general public stereotype. They're valuable. But everything yeah. else in media, not so much. Yeah, 100%. I, I think uh, you, you started, didn't you like with, with that series on YouTube, you just got books from your neighbor, right? Yeah, like, yeah. The lady was looking to get rid of her books. And you're just like, yeah. I'll take them. Yeah, I literally, so I literally made a, like I spent like five minutes making a little uh, thing on Canva. Just like, I'll pick up your books. I put it in my apartment complex's laundry room. There's like a hundred units here. And I was like, that's all I'm going to do. I could put it on Craigslist on next door. I could put it on Facebook marketplace. I could do a whole bunch of stuff, but I literally left there for about a month and someone finally messaged me. And so then, yeah, I went down grabbed her books, sold them to a buyback company because most of the books actually weren't worth anything, but I was able to get like 12 bucks. And then that's where I snowballed it from there. But yeah. $12 and a dream. <laughs> That'll be a movie. It'll be like one of the uh, ESPN 30 for 30s. $12 yep. and, and Joji's dream. And uh, it's crazy to think about though, right? You know, the, the volume you're doing, the amount of sales you're doing. And I think you're you're kind of, you're trending in the right direction. But on the topic of trends, you were doing eBay to Amazon and these kind of flips before it kind of took off here in the last year, right? So yeah. how do you feel about it kind of being like, because to me right now, I would say it's the hottest reselling trend. eBay to Amazon is the hot thing right now. Yeah. Like, how has that affected your business? Because you were there before and you're yeah. going to be there afterwards. I'm just curious what your mindset yeah. is on everybody trying to get in on it. Yeah, I think it's a lot harder to find books on eBay now using Flipmine because there are a lot more people looking for books specifically. It's a low hanging fruit. It's really not that hard to do it in the grand scheme of online arbitrage. So yeah, it's been harder to get books on eBay. With that said, I'm still finding books on eBay. And then also, I think what's something that most people are not doing is Amazon to Amazon flips. So I think in that space, it's still very, very wide open. And most of my books I buy are from Amazon directly. And that's still something that is every day. Like, I mean, even during our, you know, our podcast right now, I'm getting alerts right now on Keepa for books that are potential leads. And it's like every day I buy two or three books just from alerts that I set in the past. And those are books that have become undervalued that you could, you know, buy on Amazon, flip back on Amazon. Well, speaking of fads, have you ever done any sourcing uh, from a uh, good old whatnot? Oh, no, I didn't even, I have not. I mean, I've heard of whatnot, but I've never done any sourcing there. Um, but should I be doing that? 
I've looked at it, at least in the book market in my vintage game. Mm-hmm. You definitely could. Now, I'm not, I haven't done any specific investigation on textbooks over there. Okay. Because that's the thing. They'll hold up a book and it, it's not like you get an alert about it or anything. So you yeah. have to attend and know what they have. That's, yeah, that's, that's I think that would be the hard part to unravel. Yeah, I can see how one that would be a super super lucrative thing for a bookseller that ha- that gets a lot of textbooks. Like if somebody has a honey hole from a college or somebody who actually has like plenty like hundreds and hundreds of textbooks and they get a consistent flow of them, I can see how as a seller what not would be great cuz if you attract a whole bunch of Amazon book flippers, I'm sure you could just move stuff for obviously yeah. cheaper than what you could sell for on Amazon, but you could just move stuff so quick. Uh but I'm I haven't looked into that. Um I'd be curious to know how fruitful it would be for the time that would be invested for it, though. Right, I am too, uh, especially if you're sending it to Amazon. It's like, for me, I know I could do that easily for eBay, but yeah. on Amazon, that's a question mark. Yeah, that is a question mark. Interesting. I'm uh, I'm curious here, like, so you, you, you want to transfer kind of into like your standard OA kind of deal. Um, do you have like a, a time frame for that? Because right now, I mean, you're the hottest hottest thing on the block here eBay to Amazon like you know this these 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 are the glory days right nobody cares about us thrifters right our thrifters oh, are a thing of the past um uh, everybody wants to do what you're doing currently so like do you kind of do you have like maybe like I know you're talking about financial independence of actually switching over to OA is that when you're going to switch when you clear everything and you're ready to go or you're kind of just going to dabble in it and kind of work your way into it yeah, I'm actually starting to dabble in a little bit. I got my first box over there of some OA products that I bought. So I'm, I'm just starting to dabble in it now. Um, and the reason why, like I said, is I feel like my book business is at the point where it's almost completely automated. Like I've got a prep center and I've got VAs purchasing books for me. And I have them also doing some work behind the scenes to like kind of take a little bit of time off me. I'm currently still also buying books though, which is the thing. Like that's so, but at some point I feel like, okay, maybe I could, start transitioning out of buying books and could go towards more traditional OA. And um, why do I want to do that? I just think that there is a lot of opportunity in the OA, traditional OA space that I never got into for like mainly just fear. Like I knew it existed, but I was like, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't really sure how to get ungated in things. Wasn't really sure about IP complaints. So there's all these unknowns. There's these things that I didn't know what I didn't know. And so that kind of prevented me from going into it. And I was also really good at books. So I said, you know what, let's just focus on books. But having, gotten on youtube and gotten to meet a lot of people who are in the oa game specifically i realized that wow these things are a lot actually a lot easier than i thought they would be so i feel like i'm missing some opportunity especially if i can sort of delegate so much of the book buying business to to my virtual assistants to to carry over so for your book buying um i know you're targeting probably individual books but is there there are cases where you target book lots perhaps to get that one or two gem and then you're stuck with 48 other things. Uh, yeah. And not mostly just one-offs. Um, yeah. Mainly Amazon, eBay. They're, they're generally just people listing individual books. There are some books that I'll buy multiple copies of that. There are some books that are replans. Like yeah, I've sold four or five times in the last year that I'll buy once they get to a certain price buy kind of things. Yeah. Yeah. I, but generally I don't do, I don't do um, many many bulk buys or i don't really do any bulk buys yeah what else all right you're either going to blow up my whole business model here or not um how do you uh 
how do you condition your books or do you care about condition do you just roll do you do what you know i say everything good condition or like because your stuff's going to a prep center so your answer is going to be a little bit different because you don't physically see the book and i'm going to assume a lot of the books you're buying are probably stock photos maybe i don't know yeah. that's another thing you kind of can answer here if most of it's stock photos but like yeah. just your conditioning of your books when you when you're selling yeah uh, that's funny. I remember you, I don't know if it was a video that you had or as a comment that you said, basically you list everything good. And that originally I was like, huh, that's an interesting perspective. And yeah, I actually really appreciate that perspective once I heard of, like once I actually taught, taught you know, took some time to, to process it. But what basically what we do now is like whenever we buy a book, we just take whatever the condition is and we put that on the spreadsheet that the prep center looks at. And when they receive the item, they actually do the conditioning. So they open up and they go, okay, this is in good condition and they match it. So if mine says very good or good, they'll be like, okay, we'll just list this as good because we think it's in good condition. So the real reason why I would just take whatever the condition was and put it on that spreadsheet is in the case that we bought a book that was supposed to be very good and it's like acceptable. And so there's like something that we could maybe return to the to the to the uh, to the seller if there was a, like if they basically misrepresented what they had. But generally now I'm kind of taking more of your perspective. It's like it's either good or acceptable. So I use this good or acceptable. That's like what I do. And I'm also not convinced the customers ever read that condition note. I'm really yeah. not. You know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can't remember when I was buying textbooks on Amazon when I was in college if I read them. I think I just did you, did you ever read I, I don't have think I so. ever read a condition note on a product yeah. I bought from Amazon? No. Yeah. I'm um another thing here like I am my all right so I I don't have a prep center I never used one I kind of seen videos people talking about prep centers and it usually seems like it's kind of always negative people always like oh this prep center sucks yada 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 but it seems like the one you have is like I don't know they just seem like if I had a prep center that's what I would do for my customers it's almost as if yeah. like they kind of go the extra mile for you I don't know why or what but I mean the fact they're inspecting your books for you is uh I mean that's crazy and the fact so say say you buy a book and it's 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 just water damaged they're willing yeah. to actually send it back to the eBay customer for you right I mean I'm gonna be the one who has to contact the seller and has to get them to give me a free a free return shipping label but what they'll do on the spreadsheet is they'll basically hi highlight the entire cell red and that basically says hey this is like a hey you got to do something with this because this was supposed to be very good. It came in acceptable. It's water damaged. The spine's broken. This is, they're basically saying it's unsellable. So we're not going to send it in because we don't feel good to send this in. Like we don't think a customer's going to be happy with this. And so then I have to go back and figure out, okay, where did I buy it from? That's why tracking the books is very helpful to know where you bought it from, who you bought it from. And then you would contact the seller and just say, hey, you know, I was, I was supposed to receive this in good condition. It's an unsellable condition for this reason. Please send me a free return shipping label. And then all I would need to do is email that return shipping label to them and they'll go ahead and put that on, on the package and they'll go ahead and send it off. And they charge like $1.50 or something. So, I mean, at the end of the day, it's better than, you know, you sending in a book that you get negative feedback on or, you know what I mean? But So we've had this come up in uh, Mike's group here. Mm -hmm. Could a person do what you do that's homebound, let's say, doesn't have a vehicle or is handicapped for whatever reason and can't leave the home? Can they do what you do from their home, never leaving their home? If they had a prep center. Definitely. Yeah, it would still be a little bit difficult because you have returns. Like there's that some level you're going to have to touch some amount of products. But like for me, like 95% of what I buy, I don't ever touch. It just goes right to my prep center. It goes to Amazon. Then it goes to customer. And most books don't get returned. But there are going to be some books that you sell to the customer, gets returned. Amazon says unsellable. Then you have to obviously get sent back to your house. And then you'd have to like go leave your house, go down to your mailbox and get it. So I would say pretty much you can make it 
so that you don't ever have to leave the house. But there's got to be some point at which you're going to have to you have to touch some books. Yeah. Well, there you have it for those listening. Yeah. I mean, it just goes to show it's like kind of and that's another benefit of why a lot of the OA people are heavily into OA because you can do it from anywhere in the world. Right. Yeah. Dude, you could be, you know. And where he's at today and tomorrow could be on the moon and then Mars and then the the Bahamas and then, you know, anywhere he can he can do this from. And that's a huge appeal. Right. A yeah. lot of us are want to get our time back. A lot of people enjoy traveling and this type of business. Right. Listen, I got to be in my storage unit every day. You know, Joji don't got to be at the storage unit every day. I got to go pick up the books. You know, when when someone calls me, you're not really worried about that. And I think another thing that kind of is appealing is you're not, you know, your prep center. You, how many books you say you you send them in a week? Yeah, we buy about usually like the average is about five books a day. And so it could be 10 one day, it could be three one day. So, I mean, that's just based off of last year's numbers. It was about five books a day. So, I mean, basically they're getting about, you know, 35, 35 books on average a week. It's actually starting to increase a little bit more now because in the last few months I actually picked up a couple of VAs I'm still sourcing. So it's probably, they're probably getting more around like 10 books now, but the average last year is about five books a day. That's how many books I bought last year. Every day. So for people well, that I was going to ask you if you had a budget monetary budget, a daily one or not, but it sounds like it's just a passive per personnel kind of thing. Yeah. It's for me, it's like my average, my average profit per book is $49. So it's like, what, what, how many books would I need to buy to have to make a certain amount of profit? So, like, for me, it was like I, I need to buy five books a day to kind of get to where I want to be. Um, yeah, so for me, it wasn't ever like a, a spend goal. The average book cost is $27. So, it's like if I buy five books, I'm spending over $100 a day. And if you spend over $100 a day, that's over 3000 excuse me, over $3,000 a month. So, like, it obviously, you know, that's just the average. Some books sometimes you buy more, but between three to five thousand dollars a month would be like what you're spending or what I'm spending. Yeah, I mean, you, you you kind of build up to it, right? You know, it's yeah. not like the first day you're doing it, you're going to find, you know, 30 books you're going to buy. And I, I think it's, you know, it intrigues me the fact that you don't, you don't have to send large quantities, right? If I'm thinking prep center, um, I'm thinking I got to send, you know, X amount of units per week, per per month or something like that. So that, that's kind of good, to, good to see that you don't have to, you know, send, you know, so many units for them to actually take care of you as a customer for somebody out there that maybe doesn't want to prep. Um, I'm just curious, uh, why do you utilize a prep center? Yeah. Because at the end of the day, it's like, you got to think about what works for you in your time. For me, it's like, I have about two hours a day that I can do stuff. So do I need to spend that two hours? I need to do in that two hours, what makes me the most money and what makes me the most money is buying. It's actually not as difficult to be able to unpackage, you know, a book, condition it, list it. Like that's not something that's making the money. It's the actual buying the book. So for me, it was that. If I were not, if I didn't have a prep center, I don't know how I'd do it. Cause literally as soon as I put, you know, my boy to bed, I'd have to go down to the mailbox. I'd have to get five, seven books. I'd have to haul them up doing this at 1030 at night. Unpack. So it'd just be like, it'd be a lot less sourcing, I guess is what I should say. So for me, it was like, okay, how do I automate that part of not having to send the books in Amazon? And what I will say is it took me forever to get a prep center because I was fearful. I was anxious because I, I didn't know what I didn't know. You're all about all these people saying, yeah, if you have a prep center, like those must be those guys doing hundreds of thousands of dollars. Like it must be really hard. But I will tell you, every single step that I've taken in my Amazon business has always been like every single big step, big step has been 
me coming to the conclusion like, wow, that really wasn't that difficult. Like I should have done that so much uh, sooner, but it was like the fear of the unknown that kind of stopped me, prevented me. So what I'll say about the prep centers, if you're someone on the fence, if you, if it, if it comes down to it where it's like you're running out of time, you should absolutely get a prep center because if you have enough capital left over to go buy more products, you that's probably going to be a job that makes you more money in comparison to actually doing your prep. And in reality, you could get a prep center set up within one day, like literally within three hours, you could email a prep center. You could go ahead and say, this is my model. This is how many things I plan to send you. You would literally give them access to your account so that they can list things for you. And literally within a day, you can get a prep center set up and send them stuff starting the next day. So it actually is way easier than you think. Um, same thing with VAs. I thought getting a VA would be so crazy, so hard. You had to be this next level person, but it boiled down to it again being, I don't have enough time. I need to buy back more time. And I, I realized again, like hiring a VA is not really that hard. Like it's, it's just taking the first step. You learn along the way. Now is everything like starting Amazon seller account. That's hard for a lot of first for a lot of people, but you realize after you do it, like it's not really that hard. Same thing as selling eBay. It's like that first product that you list, you think it's really hard, but at the end of the day, once you do it, you realize, okay, it really wasn't too bad. So I'm guessing with your business model, since restock limits were a big talk this year because of things, you're not really affected by restock limits. I'm or I'm not thinking. Yeah, I mean, I was actually, I was actually affected by restock limits uh, really? about two weeks ago. I actually hit a wow. thousand. So my my base was actually a thousand, and the reason why is because my average selling price is ninety nine dollars. So if I have a thousand books in there, a thousand times a hundred is a hundred thousand dollars. So right, you have like a right. hundred thousand dollars of inventory in there. So for me, it wasn't really a problem because I was doing the model fewer books that are worth more money. And they also move very slowly. Three and a half months on average takes a long time for, for a book to move. Um, so just recently, yeah, two weeks ago, that was the first time that I couldn't send any more inventory in. And then they changed the, the What was that capacity. like for you? Because like it was great. What, what do I do? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I actually was starting to go back. And I mean, I knew that this capacity limit thing was coming up. So I was like, you know what? I'll, I'll probably just wait for two weeks. and Because I knew that once... Again, I was gonna have the the minimum 100 cubic feet. That that was gonna be well over a thousand units for books. So I was like, okay, I'm still good. So it's kind of something I'm kicking down the road. Eventually, if I get to that point where I have probably it's gonna be close to 2,000 books is my estimate based upon the numbers. Like when I would get to that 100 cubic feet capacity, then maybe I'll think about. Um, I think I'll have to think about another strategy of how to get things to move faster. I mean, I know that you can bid for space, so I'd probably look into that. You, uh, if, if we're at the club and they're like, Hey, anybody that's been really affected by restock limits, you're not allowed in that line just because you had to suffer for one week. Two weeks, two weeks, two weeks, the worst two yeah. weeks of my life, man. <laughs> I'm like sitting there for six months, I'm still outside in the line, shivering, waiting to send my stuff oh, in. Gosh. You know, it's, yeah, uh... I got very fortunate. I'll say that, very fortunate. I mean, yes. we're all kind of following in your suit, right? And we're, we all want to have a higher ASP. Um, I'm not sure, like, has your mind changed at all with sell through? Like, are you thinking about maybe going for a little bit faster selling items now that you kind of got smacked with restock limits for the first time? Is it even like come across your mind? Like, maybe I only start doing stuff that's two and a half months or three months versus, you know, three and a half months. Yeah, I definitely have changed some things. Like originally when I would be buying a book uh, where I'd buy maybe like three or four copies of, and it's inherently a book that doesn't really move very frequently, I would just send all three books to the prep center and they'd send it to Amazon. Now it's like, 
you know, I'll take, I'll, I'll send one book to the prep center and I'll send the other two to my house and I'll let it sit on a shelf. And as soon as this book sells and I'll just replenish it when I have to, because I eventually have to make shipments myself as well. Cause you know, I'll get, I'll get books here again that get returned because they got returned by the customer. So there are, you know, every, every, usually like once a month, I have to send a shipment of like 30 or 40 books into, into Amazon's warehouse. So that was one way that I transitioned. Yeah. Also I was thinking I've actually started to buy books that, or I guess this should say, I started to buy book, stop buying books that wouldn't move as, you know, that would move more slowly, I should say. So I, I've tried to transition to buying books that would move a little bit more quickly. And then going back to online arbitrage, traditional way, inherently you're buying products that have a much lower ROI, but turn much quicker. And the idea is that having a little bit of OA in there probably help, help us sell through a little bit. And that will therefore hopefully increase capacity limits a little bit. So I had a curious question because we talk about college textbooks a lot. You never hear a lot about high school textbooks. Yeah. So what's, what's uh, the game like there, my man? Yeah, I think most high school textbooks are generally not worth anything. There are some, like most of the AP textbook editions, those books generally tend to be worth something. But just it's weird. Like in my in my experience selling books, like there's just not very many high school books that actually hold a, a bunch of value. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. But there are definitely some out there, and their textbook season is usually June, July, rather than August. Or they September. even have a different season. Okay. Yeah, they have a different season because they buy right before the beginning of the textbook, or right before the beginning of the year. Which, yeah, I don't know why. It's just a little bit. Right. It's a little bit sooner. That's weird. It is weird. It's yeah. Fascinating. Mike, you, do high school textbooks. You uh, you walk in first day of class, and there's new textbooks for you in the class. Are you scanning that barcode? Hundred percent. Yeah, there we go. I knew it. <laughs> I mean, I just to know, not that I'm going to sell them, but I just I want to know, like if you know, if uh, yeah, at the end of class you have a little donation bin, drop off your textbooks. Here. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it was funny. My first year of teaching, they were throwing a whole bunch of textbooks into the dumpster, and so oh. after school, I went back and like was scanning some of them from the dumpster. I'm like. I felt so ethically. I felt like weird about it because I was like, I don't know if I should be selling these. Like these are these are from the dumpster. I'm like, you absolutely should. But like in my defense, I was thinking, what's the worst case scenario that's gonna happen? They're gonna write a newspaper article that says teacher teacher selling books from the dumpster to make ends meet. I'm like, that's not that bad of a headline. Like that that'd be actually- no. It's gonna be teacher was dumpster diving to sell textbooks. That's no. a much better headline. No, I got it right here. This this would be it, right? He's no longer Joji Davenport. He's Dumpster Davenport, right? Oh, and God. all the kids yeah. and teachers and faculty yeah. point and laugh at Dumpster Davenport every <laughs> yes, time sir. he shows up. But um, when he drives up as a Mercedes, the name calling is not so bad. <laughs> that is true. All of a sudden, they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. He was on the yeah, something. It's true. I'm Dumpster yeah. Davenport. It's cool. Have yeah. you, um, have you like, personally tried to get other people that you know in real life into the business, right? Because you kind of, you, you have proof of concept and everything. And I, I can admit, I've tried to get, you know, some of my in real life friends and it's just not for them. Have you tried ever going that route and be like, Hey, you know, like what, this is something you could do to make money. Yeah. I mean, I got my dad into it. My dad's been selling since like 2017. So I taught him how to do it. He doesn't do books. He does all like DVD and he does like ties on eBay. So he does ties on eBay and he does, uh, he does DVD. So he goes to his local, you know, local thrift stores in the area. And he'll literally just pick up a whole bunch of sealed DVs and flip them that way. And he got ungated early on in the game when it wasn't so easy, when there wasn't this guy, you know, you know, Mike, the used book guy, just telling everyone how to get ungated for free. So that, that darn guy he's, but anyway, I ruined it. I ruined it. <laughs> you did ruin it. 
But I think my dad, like back in the day, I think he paid like $250 to get on gated and DVD. Because back then, like it's become so much easier to get on gated and stuff because the information out there has, has you know, there's people like Mike out there willing to give that information out for free. And so my I got my dad into it. I got my mom into it a little bit as well. Like after the pandemic, she she got uh, furloughed. And so I, I taught her how to do some some textbook flipping as well. She got a new job. It, w- it wasn't necessarily for her. Yeah, I tried to teach some of my friends. Like I still remember... 20, 2017, 2018, we, I could go into the campus bookstore and they had a clearance section. And some of the books on that clearance section were like great books. Like I, I probably made at least a few thousand dollars from the textbook store where they were just taking hundred dollar books and putting them on clearance for 20 bucks because they were no longer being used, but they still, in, they still had value with them. So I remember taking one of my friend into one of my friends into the bookstore and scanning the books with the Amazon seller app. And at that time, Amazon would offer back gift cards for, they would actually do buybacks themselves. So I said, hey man, take this book, buy it for 20, flip it back to Amazon. They'll give you a $75 gift card. And I think he thought he found that super interesting, but then he never did anything. So yeah, going back to what you said, Mike, I think just most people are not really interested. They don't have that mindset, which is not bad. It's just, I just don't think, I think we're a unique kind of breed. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, it's one of those things where you got to kind of uh, kind of get into it and you know yeah sure you, somebody can flip something once but that's really not going to get them hooked on you know convincing somebody right you know you tell your family and friends like yeah i make a full-time income selling books and they're like yeah. you're nuts like that, that doesn't even make sense like we get a real job yeah, yeah. get get her for real job like it's it's crazy to think about so like kind of here to, to round this out for somebody that was on the fence and they kind of wanted to start doing what you were doing eBay to Amazon flips, like what, what would kind of be like your, your best advice for somebody that wanted to start today and, and just get into the business head on and fully commit to it. Yeah. I mean, I'll back up and saying that most of my business is not actually eBay to Amazon. Most of it's Amazon to Amazon. I'd say about 25% of the books that sells eBay to Amazon. Then the other 50% is like 50, 60% is more Amazon to Amazon. But if you're somebody who's just getting started, I would specifically with Amazon and selling books, I would actually not recommend doing online arbitrage. I'd recommend going to thrift stores, library sales, offer a Facebook marketplace, your local area and learning cheaply because you're going to make mistakes and it's best to learn them more cheaply. So I would say if you're somebody who's thinking about long-term transitioning into this sort of work, then keep your, your nine to five job, you know, go out and hustle, hustle when you have some time and learn the ropes. And then and then maybe transition. But I also want to give people some context. It's like I sold $105,000 in books last year. It's only $30,000 in profit. And if you think about $30,000 income, that's not like an amazing income. That's not, I mean, that's probably like, I mean, I don't know, minimum wage, minimum wage is like $20,000 or something. So it's not like it's an amazing income, but you know, I also did that basically two hours a day for throughout the whole year. And I have a nine to five job. So when you add $30,000 onto what you already make at your normal job, then it is pretty significant. So if, you know, I don't, I don't want to come across like I'm making boatloads of money. It's like, just put it into context. People who have massive orange bars usually have very, very low margins. So, you know, think of, I have people like comment on my Instagram when I show what I sell and like, dude, your margins are insane. And they think an insane margin is you sold $105,000 of books and you made 30 grand profit. So for guys out there that are doing hundreds of thousands of dollars, like they're still making good money, but also know that that's not a profit and it's not, it's not easy either. It's like, you got to put in the work, you got to put in the reps. And um, I would just say, yeah, I don't know if that's good advice, but learn from these guys. Obviously they're teaching you how to do it, ask good questions and just learn from your mistakes and, and scale slowly, still scale sustainably. Johnny B, any last questions for Joji? 
Um, what has been the biggest thing you learned during 2022? 2022. Um, I, I would say the biggest thing is not even related to books. It's more online arbitrage. I learned that online arbitrage, traditional OA is actually much easier than I thought it would be, which is why I kind of want to start transitioning into that a little bit because I see that it could be very lucrative. And I, and I think that, um, yeah, I think that's one thing. YouTube space, I learned that networking with people is actually really big. I went to the uh, Miami uh, Sellers Conference, which was huge for me. I was able to meet some really cool people. Um, I was, yeah, so I would say networking with people is really key. Meeting cool people like yourself is actually really helpful um, as well. Yeah. When you when you leave books, we will miss you, Joji. And we well, will I'm look- never, to be clear, I'm never leaving books. I'm just also good to add books on top of it, so... Yeah. You you'll be doing one book a week and you know, still I'm still flipping books. 900 deodorant sticks. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> 900 deodorant sticks. Yeah. <laughs> so if anybody's yeah. interested in finding out, you know, Joji's whole thing, he does live streams on YouTube all the time. If you're listening, Joji, J-O-J-I, Davenport, D-A-V-E-N-P-O-R-T. If you're watching on YouTube, it's literally his YouTube channel. It's just his name. He doesn't try to be all fancy like me and put, you know, the used book guy because I got to tell people exactly what I do, right? It's like it's the, only, it's the only way somebody comes to my channel. If I had just my name, I'd be nobody else. They ever ask you what you do? Like, dude, it's in the name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we appreciate you all listening to this episode and we'll talk to you guys next week. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Resellers Mindset Podcast. Today's full episode and all previous episodes are available to all YouTube members along with the weekly Zoom call and private Discord. Head on over to youtube.com backslash the used book guy and consider joining for as little as $2.99 a month.